Last September, uh, I had shared about how I started reading The Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, after many years, I had never read it before, and some, a friend had, had talked to me about it, and I, I shared how I was digging into the, the Pilgrim's Progress, and we were in Genesis chapter 24. Abraham was sending his servant to go find a wife for Isaac, and we were talking about the journey and, and not turning back. And, uh, I intended to finish uh, the, the book after I had started reading, and uh, been almost a year, and I uh, totally forgot about it, but uh, this week as I was preparing for Psalm 121, I couldn't stop thinking about the Pilgrim's Progress. I couldn't stop thinking about the relationship between the story in that book and Psalm 121. You'll see why shortly. So I picked it up again, I got about halfway through it, and Somebody needs to keep me accountable to finish the book. It's not going to take me that long. I don't want to wait until next September uh, to finally finish it. But if you're familiar with The Pilgrim's Progress, it's that wonderful allegory of the Christian life by John Bunyan. And it begins off with, starts off with Christian who is weighted down by his sin and weighted down by this burden. He's actually physically carrying a burden on his back and he sets off on this journey to the celestial city. And he meets many different people along the way. Some people are there to help him and encourage him. Other people are hindrances. And he goes, very early on, he goes to the slough of despond. And he finally makes it through on the other side after getting bogged down. Then later he comes to the hill of difficulty. And while climbing the hill, he comes to a palace. This, this palace is named Beautiful. And there's a watchman at the door named Watchful who guides him past these lions that are chained up. He can't see the chains, but Watchful encourages him to, to keep going. And then Christian asks Watchful if he can stay there for the night. And this is what Watchful says. This house is built by the Lord of the hill, and he built it for the relief and security of pilgrims. The Lord of the hill built the house for the relief and the security of pilgrims. That's exactly what Psalm 121 is about. The relief and security of pilgrims. It's the second psalm in the Psalms of Ascents. From Psalm, psalm 120 to Psalm 134. If you've read through the psalms before and you read those little headings at the beginning of each psalm, you probably notice that. Like, okay, all of these are, are called the Psalms of Ascents. What is that about? Well, most scholars agree that this is a collection of songs that God's people sang on their way up to Jerusalem as they journeyed to go to these religious festivals and as they journeyed to go and worship in the temple. So these are literally pilgrim songs that they sang as they journeyed on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is situated up in the mountains, and the only way to get there was by going up. If you've ever hiked in the mountains and, or in the Badlands, you know if you're going up, it's not just it's not just straight up. It's up, and then there's valleys, and then it's up again. So this is a very dangerous and a very interesting journey. And there's storms that come, and there's no hotels that you can turn around and go back to at this time. So imagine these weary travelers. Some of them have been traveling, probably many of them on foot, for days. If they're coming way from the outskirts of Israel, maybe weeks that they've been on this journey. So as we read Psalm 121, I want you to picture this journey. I want you to picture weary travelers and how this psalm relates to their journey. It's 
go to the text, Psalm 121, a song of ascent. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your promises in your word. The things that we have read, the things that we have seen and heard. May we not only hear, but may we believe. May we be changed for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The question I want to ask us in relation to what we've been talking about is, how should we read and interpret Psalm 121 here in the 21st century? In other words, how does this apply to us today as the people of God? As Christians, we don't go on pilgrimages. There's no worldwide temple, there's no sacred city that we have to travel to to show our devotion to the Lord. We don't have to climb mountains to get to church, at least not in our context. So what does Psalm 121 have to do with our spiritual lives? At one level, this psalm was written for a certain people at a certain time and place, and we have to acknowledge that. But if we slow down, and if we step back, I think we'll see how much the pilgrimage described here in this psalm is really not that much different from Bunyan's analogy of the Christian life in Pilgrim's Progress, which was written over 300 years ago, which might feel unrelatable to us. And it's not that much different than what we experience today in our Christian pilgrimage here in America in the 21st century. Now, I'm not advocating here for some loose, allegorical reading of Scripture. But I'm saying that if we want to see ourselves in this story, we need to see the overarching spiritual dimensions of what's going on here. And I think as we do that, we will be confronted with some of the same fears some of the anxieties, some of the hazards on our own journey that these ancient worshipers also faced on their journey. We will see our own misplaced hopes and our own misplaced trust. And may the Lord be gracious to us as he confronts us with his word and as he comforts us with the hope of the gospel. Amen? The psalm begins with a note of distress. I lift up my eyes to the hills. These aren't like the little rolling hills in southern Wisconsin where I grew up. Again, these are mountains. This is not a place of comfort. Think about your maybe your experiences. I know some of you like to hike. James just shared the key and Lexi's story. Why do you go out? Why do you go on these crazy adventures? It's because you like the adventure. You like the challenge that it brings. This is not for the faint of heart. 
If you're if you've recently been injured, maybe an, an ankle or a leg, and you're rehabbing that leg, where is the doctor going to tell you to, to walk around? He's not going to say, go up in the steepest hills and go up in the mountains where you can't get a foothold and, and walk around and try to strengthen your leg, right? No. He's going to say, walk on level ground where it's safe. And the mountains are not a place to go if you have any, like, weakness physically or if there's any challenges that will prevent you from being at full strength. You want to stay away from the hills. It's a dangerous place to be. And not just for your physical body, but for your life. If you go to, to High Cliff or to Devil's Lake, which I know some of you enjoy doing, you probably don't go there and, and worry about, I wonder if there's like some bandits or some outlaws around the corner waiting to jump us and rob us, right? But that would have been the situation for the pilgrims here in Psalm 121 on their way to Jerusalem. The ancient world was not a safe place to be out traveling by yourself or in a small group, especially here in these hills. So the question, in light of all of that, that the pilgrim traveler asks is a very important one in the second half of verse 1. From where does my help come? I'm out here on this dusty road. I'm tired. I'm weary. I'm thirsty. Again, maybe traveling alone or in a very small group. I'm scared. I need help. I need to know that it's going to be all right. And without any hesitation, the psalmist answers his own question. Verse 2. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Notice what his answer tells us. My help comes from the Lord. Yahweh. It's God's covenant name. We've talked about this quite a bit as we've been going through the Psalms. We saw last week in Psalm 103... This great description of the Lord in 103 verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That is the description of who He is. It talks about His intimate care, His nearness, how He cares intimately and personally for His pilgrim people. But then this verse here also speaks of His power and His might. He made heaven and earth. So the Lord who is near, who is close to us as our helper, is also the God who created all things. And this is good news and comfort for Christians. The reminder that the one who we believe created all things by his powerful word is also the one who helps us, who draws near to us. And rightfully, we want to try to convince our non-Christian friends of this truth, that God is the creator of all things. I think sometimes we think that the, the creation versus evolution debate will, will be the thing that will cause people to trust in Jesus and to, to come to faith as they acknowledge that God is the creator. But go read Romans chapter 1. It's not enough just to say, okay, I believe there is a creator. I'm not saying that this, that this isn't an important part of our Christian witness in the world because I believe that it is. It is a very important starting point. But I think that people often equate this idea of God as creator as, well, God is just out there, right? Like he did this thing a really, really long time ago, and he's just distant, and he's far off. 
they, maybe people who, you know, say like God kind of made it and he wound up the clock and then you just step back and he's, he's letting things play out. I think actually most of our non-Christian friends, they probably experience life much like verse 1 here in Psalm 121. I'm looking around, right? I'm looking around at the hills and it doesn't look good. Is there any help? Is there any hope in this world? Obviously a lot going on in our nation right now. People are, are reeling from the mass shootings that have been happening. People are weary. People want answers. People are weary over the political and the social turmoil that's going on. You've probably seen the headlines. Thoughts and prayers are not enough, right? You see the cynicism. You see people just tired of, stop saying you're praying for us. Stop saying you're thinking about us. That's not going to change things. What do we say to that? Well, there's a God out there somewhere, right? He created it all. <laughs> That's not enough. It never was. And especially, I don't think that will do in our day. The reason that Psalm 121 is so beautiful is because the psalmist doesn't stop with God as creator. He doesn't just say, well, God is out there, and that's enough. He goes on to speak of God's providence, his active, upholding, directing, and governing all things with a particular care for his people. We're Presbyterians, we have the Westminster Confession of Faith as our doctrinal standards. If you haven't read the Westminster Confession of Faith, if you have no desire to read the Westminster Confession of Faith, I hope you will, but at least go read chapter 5. It's my favorite chapter in the whole confession. It's on God's providence. It's just an amazing description of who God is, how He cares intimately for His people, how He is sovereign over all things, how, as this psalm is going to describe in verses 3-7, through that He is with us all the time. You can go find it online, just Google it, Westminster Confession of Faith. Read the whole thing, it doesn't take that long, but at least read chapter 5. Thank you. Um, you'll thank me for it. It's that good. Read chapter 1, actually. Chapter 1 on the scriptures is amazing, and chapter 5. It's all good, but those, those, those are the best two chapters. Okay, I'm done. Um, so... He's, the psalmist here is speaking of God's providence. We see that here in verses 3 and 4. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And this word keep is used six times in this psalm. Obviously it's very important. We have eight verses and we have the word keep used six times. The word keep, it means to protect or to preserve. We see that right there in verse 3. He will not let your foot be moved. He will keep you. He will protect you. Verse 5 starts off, the Lord is your keeper. That's in the singular. The Lord is your keeper. You individually, the Lord keeps you. But we saw in verse 4, what does it say? Behold, he who keeps Israel. It's speaking about God's keeping of his people in the plural. So just as God is faithful to his covenant promises to his people, which the psalmist mentions first, 
so he is faithful also to you as an individual. Why we talk so much about covenant theology isn't so we can just like, we don't start with ourselves, we don't say, well, God just loves me and I'm like the center of the universe. We talk about God's faithfulness to his covenants throughout the scriptures, and it always is promises that are given to his people. And we have to see ourselves in that story. We have to see ourselves as part of that covenant community, that those promises that God has given to his people, they do apply to us as individuals. And we need to take great comfort in that. We can't switch that order around. We don't start with us and say, well, it's all about me, and then, like, God loves his church too. No. God loves his people. Christ died for his church, and you're a part of that. I didn't have any of that in my notes, so. Um. Oh, okay, I find my place here. Um, so this, this language here is, is this language of redemption, of God keeping us, of God preserving us and protecting us. We saw that especially a couple weeks ago in Psalm 136, where that it talks about the, the language of, of the exodus and the conquest of God going before his people, God redeeming his people out of Egypt. And if you're just joining us, if you haven't been with us all summer, we've been in the Psalms, and we've been telling the story of the gospel as we've walked through the Psalms. We've spent three weeks in Psalms that are about creation, three weeks on Psalms about redemption, or fall, uh, three on redemption, and three on consummation. So creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And we've been walking through the story of Scripture and the story of the gospel, seeing how the Psalms of God's people in the Old Testament point us forward to the hope that we have in Christ, point us to the gospel. And I love this psalm because this psalm really has elements of all four of these, these parts of the story. The creation part there in, in verse 2, God is the one who made the heavens and the earth. The fall, you know, it's not that clear necessarily, but verse 1, I lift up my eyes to the hills, it's a recognition that there's trouble around, right? There's sin around. There are things that aren't as they should be. Then verses 3 to 7 are that picture of redemption and what God has done uh, to save us and to keep us. And then verse 8 is the consummation. It's the looking forward, and we'll get to that in a little bit. That's kind of an overview of, of where we've been. This, this psalm is kind of a microcosm of that, that whole picture. I love verses 3 and 4 because it also has this important reminder that God does not slumber or sleep. He is not like the gods of the surrounding nations. If you have your worship guide, uh, there's a quote on there from William Van Gemmeren in his uh, commentary. I love this. He says, Pagans permitted their gods to sleep, but the God of Israel is not like any god. He does not need to recreate, eat, or sleep. He is always there to help. He is the shepherd of Israel who protects, guides, and blesses his own sheep. Regardless of the happenings of life, whether at work or at home, whether asleep or awake, the Lord is there to help and to protect. What a God. But aren't there times in our lives where it feels like God is asleep? Are verses 3 and 4 just some pie-in-the-sky version of, of life and of Christianity that, oh, God is just, he never sleeps, he never takes a day off, and, and we just, it's just something that we try to tell ourselves so we can convince ourselves that he's really there. 
and that he really cares. You're certainly not alone if you've ever felt that God is asleep in your life or in the world. Listen to the psalmist cry in Psalm 44, speaking to the Lord. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Last week we talked about preaching the gospel to ourselves. And that doesn't mean that we don't ask these hard questions. It doesn't mean that we never say, God, why are you sleeping? Why do you hide your face? Those types of laments are okay. They're biblical. We have biblical warrant for asking those types of questions. But we don't stop there. It might feel like God is asleep. It might appear to us that he's not concerned with our lives and with our well-being. But do you remember Jesus on the boat with the disciples in the midst of the storm? What did they say to him? Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? To which Jesus said, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? In other words, do you not understand that I am the creator and the sustainer of all things? I will not let your foot be moved. I will not let you drown. I am your helper and your keeper. Friends, I don't know what's going on in your life right now. I don't know what type of storms are raging in your life or what type of mountain you feel you can't get a foothold in. Might be a relationship with a, a family member or a friend that feels irreconcilable. Might be a mountain of debt that you feel buried beneath. Might be a physical ailment that causes you pain or stress. And those are problems that are real problems. Those are problems that aren't going to just go away overnight. We're not going to just pray some magic prayer. We're not going to just you know, write Psalm 121 on our mirror and wake up every morning and read it and, okay, everything's just going to be great. That's not how the Christian life works. That's why we have things like Psalm 44 that say, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Why are you hiding your face from me? But when you chose to follow Jesus, you didn't sign up for a life free of problems. You know what? God is not sleeping on you. He's not asleep. He's not slumbering. In fact, He's actively watching over and protecting you. That's what His providence is. And He's always acting. He's always protecting. He's always watching over you. There's not a second where He looks away and then says, Uh-oh, what happened? Psalmist goes on to describe this, starting in the second half, verse 5. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. This word for shade in the Psalms is translated a lot of times as the shadow of your wings. 
If you've read through the Psalms, you're familiar with that language. You've seen this under the shadow of your wings. And in Psalm 91.1, a psalm that a lot of people are familiar with, in verse 1 it says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. The word for shade here is the same word used there as shadow, the shadow of the Almighty. And it goes on to say in Psalm 91, For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. This idea of shade. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. Verses 5 and 6 speak very closely to the experience of the pilgrim in Psalm 121. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. This language of protection is seen in, as it go, the psalmist goes on in verse 6, The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. So this, this picture of day and night is meaning at all times. God will not let your foot slip. God will not let you face harm. Ever. He is with you both day and night. So God never sleeps. He always covers and protects His people on their pilgrimage. Psalm concludes in verses 7 and 8 by expressing the comprehensiveness of God's keeping work. Verse 7, the Lord will keep you from all evil. I believe this is speaking of both the, the physical evil in the, in the world and spiritually, that God will protect us. It says he will keep your life. The word here for life is also translated soul. It's not just your physical life, it's, it's your whole being, it's everything about you. He will, he will keep you and he will protect you. Remember Christian, on the pilgrimage to the celestial city, coming to the hill of difficulty, that seems to be the experience that the psalmist is describing here. And it reminds us that the Christian life is not a cakewalk. You don't come to Jesus for a comfy life. And after you get done Googling Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5, go Google Matt Papa's song, Stay Away from Jesus. It starts off, he says, You won't ever hear this song on Christian radio, because the Jesus that I serve is not safe. He'll say, Take your cross and die, so if you want a comfy life, stay away from Jesus. Do you know where Christian passed right before he went to the hill of difficulty? He came to the cross. And when he came to the cross, the burden rolled off of his back and down into the empty tomb. And then the three shining ones appeared and they reminded him that his sins were forgiven. The promise of the forgiveness of sins and the strength for the rest of the journey came from the cross. And if you're here today and you have not yet had that burden lifted off from your back, the burden of sin and guilt and shame by Jesus. That is where your journey in life needs to start. It needs to start at the cross, by trusting in Christ, by confessing your sins, receiving forgiveness of sins and new life from Him. 
That's the only way that your pilgrimage through life can begin to make sense. It's the only way that the promise of verse 8 can be applied to you as it is to all of those who trust in Jesus for their salvation. This is the picture of the final stage of the creation, fall, redemption, consummation. This is the picture of consummation. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. God promises to keep us, to keep his people, all of our days, wherever we go, not just here and now, but forevermore. This is a promise of eternal life, a promise of being kept by God and of finally being raised on the last day as we enter the celestial city. But in the meantime, as we wait and as we hope on this earthly pilgrimage, may we lift up our eyes to see the Lord, our helper and our keeper. And may we both rest in him and run this race with confidence, knowing that we will be kept from all evil. And that our time of exile here in this, on this earth will one day end when we see our maker face to face. Let's pray. God, you are good. Your promises to your people are good and they are true. God, may we be reminded that you are a helper, that you are our keeper, that you are the one who walks with us, that you are the one who does not let our foot slip. We thank you for the cross where the burden of our sins rolled away, where we received forgiveness of sins and new life, where that stony heart was turned to a heart of flesh. We thank you for the resurrection, for the promise of new life, for the, for the picture of hope that we have, that we will one day be raised, that we will one day meet you face to face. Not just as individuals, but as your people. God, again, as our worship here is, is a foretaste of that, may we look forward with longing and expectation, rejoicing in the here and now in what you have done, and looking forward to what is to come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our last song, number 